Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello, Economic Rockstars, and welcome back to another episode. And in this week's show, I interview a duo who happen to be a husband and wife, Steve Horvitz and Sarah Squire. And if you're a long-time listener of the podcast, you might recognize these names as they have featured previously. Steve Horvitz featured in episode 108 and Sarah Squire featured in 129. And I didn't even realize that they were married. It was only toward the end of the interview with Sarah Squire that she mentioned that she was married to an economist. And I inquired a little further and lo and behold, it was Steve Horvitz. And it was prior to this interview with Sarah when I reached out to her first back in episode 129 that I asked would she come on a second time so we could do something on writing. And I was delighted that she agreed and it was only recently that we began to make arrangements and I decided why not have Steve join us in this interview, which they gratefully decided to come on. So this episode is over 90 minutes in duration. And we had a casual and a comfortable conversation regarding writing, the writing process, whether you're an academic or an author, or somebody who might have a blog. And I had a number of questions that I wanted to ask Sarah and Steve, but I I just let the conversation develop naturally, and I asked those questions when they came. So Sarah and Steve shared a number of tips, some of their habits in which they, how they approach their writing how to keep their desk, what time of the day they best write at, as well as how to deal with reviews and resubmissions for those of you who are into academia and have to face the peer review process. Hopefully I'll have this episode out soon on YouTube as I filmed it and I'll break the video up into smaller sections so that we could address those questions and answers. So this episode with Sarah and Steve is completely unedited and it's a raw file. So all I did was adjust it for sound because I wanted to capture the natural conversation that was going on between us. So let me know if you've noticed anything different regarding the edited versions, which I do spend quite a bit on in the previous episodes compared to this episode, which is completely unedited. And if you want to join a conversation and add to anything that we've discussed today, why not check out economicrockstar.com forward slash Sarah and Steve and you can add to the comments on that particular blog page or why not check me out on Twitter econ underscore rockstar check out my Facebook page economic rockstar or on Instagram economic rockstar I'd be absolutely delighted to hear from you and if you're a writer be it in economics or any other discipline or in fiction or non-fiction and you'd like to be on this podcast to add to this please give me a shout over at economicrockstar at gmail.com and we might put a show on together. You can check out all the links and resources mentioned by Sarah and Steve over at economicrockstar.com forward slash Sarah and Steve. And if you've missed any of the previous episodes, why not check out economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts to check out all episodes that are available. If you're on Apple Podcasts, why not subscribe and leave an honest rating and a review? For everyone else, you can find me on Spotify or on my own website where you can actually download the episodes, keep it for another time to play, or you can play away as you browse the site. If you're a fan of the podcast and would like to support the show, why not check out my Patreon page over at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar where you can support the show for as little as $1 per month. There are other tiers available where you can support the show for $2, for $4 plus. And again, sharing is caring, so 
I would love if you could share this episode or any other previous episode that you'd like with somebody else that you know could appreciate listening to the same episode as you. Just find links on any of those podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even my own website and send them an email, copy the links and pass it on. And it's you by spreading the word that helps me organically grow this podcast and reach more listeners. So thanks again for listening to the podcast and enjoy this episode with Sarah Squire and Steve Horvitz. And I read it and I thought, this is awesome. I have no idea what to do with this. I wonder if anybody knows this is a thing, mm. right? <laughs> and so I went, hey, Steve, yeah. <laughs> first, first. Thing, this really cool thing, this looks like it's got money and stuff in it. And this is like your kind of stuff. But I don't know what to do with it. I did. So uh, <laughs> I teach an economics of gender class, nice. uh, economics of gender in the family class, right? And and I do a lot of history in that class, so the history of the evolution of the family and so on. So can you hear me? All right. Now we are audible. But Here, Frank's quick. not audible. Oh, oh you hang on. Yeah, drop, drop there. Yeah. There we go. We got you. Oh, you have me. Yeah. Yes. You have me. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, complete incompetence on my part. Sorry about that. Wait, what was, <laughs> what was the problem? She the never thing... uses her speaker. She always has her headphones on. So she just like forgot to, there's a little portable speaker that has to be plugged in and, and, uh, and, and uh, Skype needed to know where, where we were listening from. So we got it. As usual, uh, my my ex husband, the IT guy, would have said, "Problem exists between chair and keyboard, <laughs> <laughs> or it's an ID ten T uh, yeah. error." Are yeah. you familiar with that one? ID ten ten T? No, it sounds like something yeah. out of Star Wars. Right. No, read read closely. <laughs> You learn something every day. Yep. Yes. New ways to insult people brought to you by yeah. Sportwits. I might put that into my, um, integrated somewhere into my lecture notes, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Excellent. Well, welcome to the Sarah and Steve show. I mean, the Economic Rockstar podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're going to get. Pretty much. <laughs> Well, I, it was great talking to you, Steve. Um, it was, I just looked back episode 108 and with yourself, Sarah, it was 129, which wasn't All too right. long ago, but it was, I think it was six months ago, according to um, Skype when we were last speaking yeah, to one another. But, um, yeah. I didn't realize the connection until you mentioned it, Sarah. I you know, know you're hanging around with economists. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just a little. <laughs> and I guess when I was last speaking to you, um, I would have liked to have talked about writing or whether any form of writing, whether it's academic or uh, writing in terms of leisure, which I think is something that people, if if you write for leisure, it, it, it takes the hard work out of it in terms of the accountability. And mm -hmm. then, Steve, you sent me an email. There's anything else you'd like to talk about? And to be honest, I, I'd love to just have a somewhat an informal conversation, find out a bit about you more in the comfortable surroundings. You know, you're at home. Hopefully you're, you're relaxed and see what comes out. And I follow 
Steve on Facebook and at times he throws some wonderful gripes about what's going on around the world. I won't mention any names, but um, maybe we'll hit it. <laughs> Maybe we'll go down that road as well, if that's okay yeah. with you, Sarah. Yeah. I'm sure, um, yeah, as long as he's not talking about you, no. Well, not certainly he's never irritated with me, so that's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so how would you like to start this, or do you want to, maybe maybe we could find out what you've been up to since. See, well, Steve, that's a good question. Yeah, Steve, you've been <laughs> through the mill, haven't you? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in, in, in my case, since we last talked, I think it was over a year ago, right? So. Yeah. Uh, so I've been, I've been, as I think you know, perhaps been battling uh, a cancer diagnosis since then. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I'm doing great. Uh, mm. I've been through some treatment and uh, I'm in remission and I feel really, really well. So I just need my beard to grow back. That's the only thing I really need. Uh, but, you know, so that certainly has slowed my, my productivity down uh, in a number of ways. But I'm, I am working on a series of projects right now for, for my friends at the Mercatus Center all of which that deal with uh, crises and how people respond to crises. And you can see how this might have come out of their work and my work on, on Hurricane Katrina. Mm. But they're interested in expanding that to a much larger sort of question about, about how the private sector, civil society, and in, in the case of one of the papers I'm working on, how households respond to crises, whether it's natural disasters or economic crises. And so uh, I'm doing a bit of work on that right now, uh, which is fun. And it was, it was good to get back to that. And I'm I'm still uh, still working on uh, on on my monetary stuff. I guess the other thing is I, I it should be out sometime soon. It's been delayed. I have a big project with the Cato Institute on uh, Austrian economics. Uh, some video lectures, some audio lectures, a, a book, a short kind of ebook manuscript. So all that should be out probably early next year. I think at this point, but maybe maybe sooner. We'll see. Wow, that's a lot of so, work. And do you like? Sorry, Sarah. Um, how do you? Oh, no, that's how, where do you fit into all of this? Uh, does he have time for you? Would you have time for him? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say. So what that means basically is that Steve is more productive with cancer than most people <laughs> without it, which is a little bit daunting. Yeah. Um, and is that so because I'm, he's you're, he's um, at home a lot, or you know maybe the realization that you're. You have this illness that it kind of pushes you to do more in such a short space of time, or is it something different? No, I, I I would just say I I can't be happy unless I'm working. Yeah, and I do think that uh, the when you when you have something like this, the more normal you can make your life in every mm-hmm. other way, the better. Yeah. So if I were sitting at home, you know, staring at TV all day long. I would be sicker than I am now. I think. I think, and I, I just had this interesting. I had this conversation with one of the oncology nurses last week. But yeah, I think sort of getting back to your life and living your life the way you lived it, have always lived it, uh, is one of the best things you can do to deal with the disease. So, um, so in my case, that's that's probably part of it too. And some of the stuff like the project for Cato, the work on that is basically done, and most of that work was done about a year ago. Uh, some of the writing since, but but so that's basically done. I'm just kind of waiting on that. The, the crisis papers, though, are new, are new work I've been doing over the last six months. Mm-hmm. So I'm working right now. I'm spread out. I know my desk, my desk, which is a train wreck right now, is filled with uh, books that I'm using for research on a paper about uh, Shakespeare's Richard III and the uh, Elizabethan succession crisis. Um, so that's one project that I'm working on. I'm also... Uh, 
in a sort of an email conversation with an organization about um, publishing a collection of essays of mine about economics and literature. Nice. Um, just had a review of a book called Sense and Sensibility come out, um, which is very funny because the review came out. And then about two days later, Steve was asked whether he would do a review of the book. Actually, what I was Actually, asked was, was it whether we would co-author a review of the book? And I told, I said to the editor, I said, I think Sarah's already read and reviewed that. And I said, and you don't want me to write one by myself because I'll, because I've already read her review. So it turns out I'm going to co-author with someone else to go fool around with another literature with another, professor. Another okay. Literature. <laughs> <laughs> so your desk is a mess, is it? Uh, yes, it is. It always is. But and of course, a, I'm, you know, you know I'm where everything is. Well, no, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> um, but and I'm always pulling. It's making me a little shaky just sitting here, frankly. So how different do you, Steve, to Sarah's process? Uh, my, you could. My desk is immaculate usually. Um, I mean, like there's actual space to work on it, even if I'm in the middle of a project. And and yeah, no, this is one of the major differences between us. I'm I'm a like I'm a. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, have a rage for order. I can't work if there's a mess. Uh, I need things all in place, both like professionally and personally. So, um, Do- Dr. Squire is much more organic. I'm Hayekian, really, about, <laughs> about the organization of my office, which is order eventually emerges. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly not um, top down in any sort of way. So you might be more the creative person then and let it kind of grow organically in terms of the, the approach to your work or something. Or, and maybe, Steve, I don't know, are you more institutionalized? We were actually talking about this just the other day because we're we're both working on writing projects right now and we're both in the early stages where you're really formulating your your first thoughts about really narrowing down exactly what you're writing about and starting to outline a little bit yeah um and i was saying that his project is his process is so much more orderly than mine is and i think part of that is a disciplinary difference yeah. which is that steve um I think, and, and a lot of economists go back to some very set texts that they're always going to use. And this is in no way a criticism. There are just, you know, if you're going to talk, a, if you're going to do sort of an Austrian approach to money and banking, mm-hmm. right, there are things that you absolutely must use. He knows them really well. He's been using them for, what, 30 years or more, right? Um, whereas for a paper like the one that I'm doing now, I'm using Shakespeare, right? But I'm also using, uh, because it's gotten me into questions of theology and Elizabethan politics. So I'm looking at the book of homilies and I'm looking at Calvin's, uh, biblical commentaries and I'm looking at literary criticism on Richard the third. And I'm sort of drawing from all over the place. Okay. So rather than sort of knowing where I'm going to look, when I when I set out my question, I set out my question, and then I think where might there be some stuff on that? So it's like and a discovery so kind of, process. Yeah, yeah, spontaneous kind of order. Yeah, well, kind of, kind of. From <laughs> all over the place and finding things I don't expect. Right. Which is not to say that economists don't do that. I just think it's more endemic to particularly the kind of. Uh, 
interdisciplinary literary work that I tend to do. What's great about right. that is possibly it, it might lead you down a certain path where you may not have felt that you were going to go down and you you discover certain things that yeah. kind yeah. of yeah. blows yeah. your mind and think I could use right. that really, you know, or I could do do something else with that later on by developing it even further. Whereas I, I think I think one of the yeah. differences is is that I tend to more often I won't even start writing like working on a project until it's until like it's in my head and I have it. Right. And so I'm, I'm, I'm Mozart, right. When he says, is the opera done? And he says, it's just scribbling and bibbling. Right. I mean, I, it's in my head. I have to write it. Now that's not to say when I, you know, I'll often sit down and start writing and realize as I'm writing, Nope, it's a different thing than I thought it was. Right. That discovery process happens too, where you realize, no, the, the, the thing I thought was the third part of this paper is really the thing that should be the first part. Of it. Right? I mean, we all get that. I think, Again, Sarah can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she, like this project she's working on is much more one where where she she had a topic she wanted to explore and and didn't quite know exactly what was going to happen with it. But in reading all this stuff, as she's you know order emerges out of that into into something coherent, right? And I think that's just a different. Some of that's disciplinary, but some of it is 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 also sort of personal. I, I just I you know I. I don't want to start working on something until I at least have a pretty good idea in my head of what that whole thing's going to look like. It may well, it's going to evolve and change as I write, but, but I can't kind of write, I can't even start in some sense until I have a pretty good idea in my head of what the, what the argument is. And I think part of that economists have that, have the structure of economic theory too, aside from, you know, particular books or particular theorists, right? You're always bound in by having to make an argument that, that, that works as far as theory goes. And so that constrains you in some ways. Can too. I play devil's advocate here? Like it sounds as if Sarah's type of work would be, would keep the reader entertained for longer and would read a whole paper. Whereas if people knew what you were going to write about, Steve, like you, you admitted yourself, you think, yeah, I've read that before. Uh, I skip the literature and I move on to whatever other new thing is emerging from your own thought process. Or does that happen at all? I'm sure it does because uh, well, I, I present the papers before and they just skip to the very end and look at the. Well, right. Well, I mean, everybody reads the the summary yeah. at the beginning and yeah. then the conclusions right. and checks to see if they're right. uh, cited. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. That, well, there's <laughs> a famous, you know, there's a famous. I think it was Bob Lucas, the Nobel Prize winner. You know, somebody said to him one time, "Oh, well, you know, uh, with econ papers, I read the introduction, and the conclusion, and I just skip over all the math and see what's going on." And, and Lucas supposedly said something like, "Oh, that's funny. I do the opposite with him." <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like so. What's your reader, right? And what is yeah. what is yeah. your does your reader want to do? So I, I, I don't know. I don't think it's, you know, I think it's not, I think it's just more a difference. I think it's disciplinary, but I also think some of it is sort of our own approaches to writing. And I, I can't, you know, I, so I was in this stage yesterday or the day before. I have this paper that I'm working on. I had a blank screen and uh, blank screen isn't true. I had about 600 words worth of, you know, sort of thoughts. Um, but I had to sit down and say, all right, I got to give myself some section headings in this thing. I got to think about, you know, what the order of attack is for, for this argument and, and what, what do I, you know, what material do I already have that I could write now? What, what do I, and, and in, in the case of that particular paper, there are some things I need to go back and re, reread and, and, and go forward and have it read yet to sort of fill in parts of that paper too. So, so I think it's just for me, it's like laying it all out and saying, all right, what does it look like? What do I have to do? We also have an occupational difference though, right? Since I'm yeah. not in a traditional academic job, yeah. um, it's 
great if I publish. Liberty Fund is delighted if I publish, but I'm not under any pressure to publish. So I have a lot more freedom to just sort of, you know, go wandering blindly <laughs> through the field, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, Hans Christian and, Andersen uh, approach, maybe like Little Red Riding Hood and if you come across yeah. the big bad wolf. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And and so that that frees me up to do the sort of quirky stuff that I really enjoy doing. I'm very I'm very fortunate that way. Um, If I had a more traditional academic job, I suspect I would have just by virtue of the need to to produce on a more regular basis. I probably would have produced a much more um, sort of organized approach. And and indeed, I suspect that if my propo- if my approach were more like Steve's, I'd be a heck of a lot more productive, but I also think I might have less fun. So I can see the advantages with two of them. Like, Steve, you, you because you know your area, and even if the area is relatively new to you, you still want to find that structure. And by putting out those subheadings and having that structure or blueprint, it allows you to run with it and fill in those areas. And if you find that section three sub sh- should be in section one, you know, it, it is difficult and not trying to belittle it because it is very difficult yeah. to put a piece of academic work together. And Sarah, yours is total opposite. You have your heading, you need to go down different paths, but there is structure when you look back and read it. Once you've, once you've right. f- find, find all it reads extremely well and really appeals to me the way it's written too. And something that's different, yeah. you're not under the pressure under any particular um, organization or academic uh, discipline. So except maybe uh, literature um, and yeah, allows that creativity to explore, allows you to explore your create, creative side. Right. And, and so, I mean, I just pulled up cause you were, I think Steve and I actually probably end up, you know, once I've sort of gotten through my chaotic, I have to read all of the things phase, which is where I currently am. I usually end up with, <clears throat> Sort of a solid paragraph at the top of the page. I just pulled the document that I'm working on right now. Solid paragraph at the top of the fa- page, followed by an outline of the sections of the paper that are going to follow. Okay. I didn't know what they were when I started doing the reading all the things phase, but they've evolved as I've been reading. I think Steve is more likely to sort of say, if I'm going to answer this question, yeah. I'm going to need a section on yes. X and then on Y yep. and then on Z. Yep. Whereas I'm much more liable to say, I'm going to answer this question. Let me go see what I can find. Then it turns out that my sections are going to be X and Y and Z. And, and right? But we end up yeah. more or less in the same place. And one of the ways yeah. when I teach this to students, right, when I, when I spend a lot of time teaching first-year students how to write research papers, one of the analogies I used to use, and it's ironic because I don't do it and she does, <laughs> is like knitting a sweater, right? When you knit a sweater – you you make it in pieces and then you pull all the pieces, you know, sew all the pieces together, right? And so I also said this is, look, you, you need to think of this. This paper has sections to it, and they're like pieces of a larger thing that you're going to make. And the sections have to have their own integrity, right? And then part of what you do is get the transitions in there and make the connections and sew the thing all together. And the pattern you're looking at, right, is 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 the is determined by what that thesis is, what that main what that main line of argument is. Right. And, and so I, that's how I still think about it. It's a, another word here would be modular. Right. I like to think about those sections as they're almost like mini papers of their own. Right. That you're then having to make each of those arguments and then find the ways to create the transitions that that time all together. Right. And sometimes one of the nice things about that modular kind of thinking is that sometimes as you're writing. Um, you think you have a writing problem. 
Like you think the paper is not working. Yeah. You think it's just like not coming together. And what it really is almost always I find is that it's not a writing problem. It's a structure problem, right? You have, you have all the stuff that you need. You have the argument. You're just trying to make the argument in the wrong order. And if you move the section that's down at the bottom somewhere to the middle, then all of a sudden your paper snaps into focus. And, and one of the other things we should mention too, right? I mean, we've been talking about writing academic papers, right? So, mm-hmm. so we're thinking about that sort of, you know, 20, 25, 30 page sort of typical academic paper, but other kinds of writing are different, right? I mean, I do a lot of, uh, you know, not so much now, but when I was writing weekly or biweekly columns, right? That, that sort of 800 to 1200 word thing is a different thing. And the kind of long blog post 2000 word thing is a different thing, right? For those, I'm much more, and it drives her nuts when I do this, right? Like I'll just op- I'll just open the laptop or sit down at the desk, and I it's in you know it's just boom it's in my head. I don't even need an outline for that. That I can just, just twelve hundred words. I can do you know asleep, right? I can do twelve hundred mm-hmm. words. Now whether they're twelve hundred good words is different, and that's where she comes in and looks <laughs> and it goes. Those are twelve hundred <laughs> okay words. We can make them better, uh, but, but or sometimes no, you can't. Yeah, some, you yeah, can't sometimes you can't that. write that. No, you, you can't. can't. Uh, there's that. been a couple of those too, but, but that's a different, right. That's a different kind of thing. Or even the long, you know, I, I just, I wrote this long piece for uh, the libertarianism.org uh, thing at Cato recently. Uh, that was about 2,200 words, I think. Right. And I just, that was in my head and that just came out. I just sat down and, and that comes out. I mean, you, you, you think of additional things as you're writing, but still right? those, I think of those as shorter pieces, not, you know, not everyone else would, but those are different. Right. I think it's when you're dealing with a, sort of formal traditional academic paper you, you need I need to impose that structure on yeah and no, I, from being, I agree. I, yeah sorry the same kind of thing with those shorter pieces even though again I'm much more liable to to want at least to have a couple of um, almost like hooks to hang the thing on yeah. sort of figured out before you know because often what I'm writing about is isn't it weird you never thought about the insane connection between this thing over here and this other completely apparently unrelated thing way the heck over here. Mm. I want to kind of have those two things in place before I then explain to people why my crazy brain sees connections. Right. Um, so, but again, like with Steve, uh, with those shorter sort of 1200 to 2000 word things, that's often as much of a outline as I'll have before. it. I'm just like, I got to connect a and 37 <laughs> one, time, make them go together. one time I described I described my own sort of you know idiosyncratic approach to economics and and sort of interdisciplinary saying I like to take two plus two and make five out of it. Now there was a joke in there about how Austrians can't do math, but I told that to Sarah one time and she said I, I, you know she said something like, well I like to t- take Australia plus thirty seven and make platypus out of it, right? I mean like. <laughs> You know, <laughs> platypus is a little too related yeah, to Australia. Yeah, whatever, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, like you, you mentioned about, Sarah, you mentioned um, about you like to have the close, close pegs. I came across yeah. a method, or oh, I forget the name of the author, but he wrote the, and it was a movie made out of it about Bagger Vance. Do you know that author? Yes. He had no. what's called the clothesline method. And what mm-hmm. he structure, how he structures it is, that you picture a clothesline, and it's like putting on a, a piece of we clothing. Just lost your oh, have you? Can you hear me now? You're back now. Now you're back. Yep. You have you? Can you hear me? That's better. We got good, it. Good. All right, we're good. 
um, the the author of um, the book um, on Bagger Vance, he has a method called the clothesline method. And it's like a clothesline, you put a piece of uh, clothing on it and then from that, say a t-shirt, and that, that piece of t-shirt or paper has a bit of a structure of what's going on and that could deal with chapter one or a particular theme and then you hang other pieces off that primary piece and it kind of goes a little bit deeper and he moves on. It's very good, effective. I'm sure it is a fairly effective method. It kind of clears things up and allows that structure even for something that's non-academic, such as a, a literary, literary piece. Um, Steve, you, you were on about how structured you are and your desk is a reflection of that. And Sarah, you navigate in a, a very exploratory part of your mind and also the readings that you have and again reflected on your desk I'm sure as you mentioned earlier <laughs> are your lives how different are you or I, I know at the same time you you arrive at the same point because once it gets published it's it's out there you know and that's the whole aim but is this like do you bring a shopping list for example Steve to, to the local supermarket <laughs> And Sarah, do you do you overspend by just go the shopping list? No, well, I bring a shopping list. You bring um, the shopping I list. Otherwise, I know. I do. Otherwise, I'd stand in the middle of the grocery store and just spin. wander around. You know how you order an Uber and it's waiting in a traffic light yes, and you get you. of the car just spinning. That that would be me. So, I Steve, if, if if Sarah's lost in a supermarket, you could easily find. Well, maybe not. You mightn't find yeah. her at all. The smoke coming out of breath. I, I mean, there's, yeah, I, that, but that's, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a list maker, uh, I, you know, and, 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 a, and a calendar person. And I just, and, and it, uh, and it's not, it's just, for me, it's about, just, I need to know what's going to happen next, right? Mm. Um, I, I just, just tell me what's going to happen, right? So I can be, I can prepare, and and I mean, you know, there you could you could stereotype economists and efficiency and all that, right? Yeah, yeah, one, yeah. One, one could, one could, one could. We're, we're one so inclined, one could do that. <laughs> <laughs> let me know. When, let me know when you're done. That's that's you know, but that's part of it, right? I mean, I just you know, I, I I'm I got lots of things to do. And I want to make sure that I can get them all done. Yeah. And and actually, surprisingly, I'm a big list maker. I'm yeah. a big calendar person. But that's because I know that if I don't yeah. write stuff down, the I'm nearly always about 10 seconds away from complete chaos and utter system meltdown. <laughs> so, like, if things if I don't have lists, if I don't have the calendar going. Who knows? You know, I could wake up tomorrow in Hong Kong. I just, you know. <laughs> knows right so i keep it very organized because otherwise you know the the chaos that is always lurking right below the surface is going to completely overwhelm everyone and i'm, I'm so, uh, and i'm order all the way down there's no chaos lurking below my right. surface. and so we actually i think we actually both really like those things about the other one like i love it yeah. that if i forget something steve has already planned for the fact that i might forget it yeah and has you know a backup plan in place for for making that thing happen and somebody's got to make me more spontaneous so right, and i think yeah and i think that that the fact you know that i'm always sort yeah. of interested in something different right. and you never know what nope. it's going to be nope. 
<laughs> you know, I think Steve finds that sort of fascinating from a distance, right? Yes, <laughs> like, it's some kind of strange creature that, that that I'm still quite sort of trying to figure out. Right. He stays in the space station. I go out on the spacewalk and I come back and report. Uh, um, and it actually works really well. And it works really well in so, fact. I'm, and I'm like, the one who's making sure that the tether is still right, tied yes. so you don't float away to Neptune or something. Right. <laughs> but it works really well for writing together, right? Because yeah. I'm always bumping up against new stuff. I mean, yeah, I just yeah. did this for you the other day. Right, right. Yeah, right? Yes. Um, uh, I'm always bumping into stuff um, that maybe I can't use or I'm not going to use right now or that I think will turn into a good project for um, for Steve and for me to work right. on together. Right. And I kind of bring it back. So, and I'm I, like, ooh, look at this shiny object right. I just found. So we should <laughs> talk about that respect. I mean, the best example of that historically is roundabout on the week, right? Yes. So... I don't know which one of us wants to start. I'll tell the first half. All right, you go. Okay, so is this there's a, this, is this the true? This well, no, it's it's a, it's all true, but yeah. it's a good two part. It's yes. a it's a really good example yes. of exactly this. Yeah. So there's a publisher whom I really like, um, London publisher um, called uh, Persephone Books. Okay. Um, and they publish. This is the long version of the story. Sorry, <laughs> you're Irish. Pour a drink. I'll be done eventually. <laughs> um, so um, they publish mostly women's fiction written between World War One and World War Two. Yeah. Um, a lot of which has a, a strongly economic component because women are are uh, moving from uh, in home work to out of the homework mm. during those years. So. While I was basically buying everything that they publish, um, I ran across a book that they publish called Roundabout a Pound a Week. Hmm. That one is not fiction. It's a uh, book written by a group of Fabian socialist women in 1912. 12-13. 12-13. And what they wanted to do was to test this proposition that they had heard often which is that poor people are poor because they're they're irresponsible and they don't know how to manage their money. Mm. Right. And that what you really need to end poverty is good money management skills. And so rather than theorizing what this group of women did was go into one of the respectable working poor neighborhoods of London, uh, families where the father is, you know, an apprentice uh, woodworker or a bricklayer where the 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 uh, income of the household is round about a pound a week mm. um, and ask the women in the family to record how all of the money was spent. Right. Mm. So it's a, it's a treasure trove of economic and demographic detail from the period, right? You find out what people spent on coal, what they spent on funeral insurance, what they spent on, uh, shoes. Rent, shoes, healthcare, like everything is tracked and wow. it's, and it's curious. Um, and I read it and I thought, this is awesome. I have no idea what to do with this. I wonder if anybody knows this is a thing. Mm. Right. <laughs> and so I went, Hey, Steve, yeah. <laughs> I this really cool thing. This looks like it's got money and stuff in it. And this is like your kind of stuff, but I don't know what to do with it. I did. So uh, <laughs> I teach an economics of gender class, uh, nice. economics of gender and family class, right? And and I do a lot of history in that class, so the history of the evolution of the family and so on. So 
uh, I brought this into that class and uh, had the students read it at a couple key places and then created a whole sort of classroom exercise. I, th I think it's called the Grim Calculus uh, around this where they have they can use the actual. Yeah, I think it was her title. Cause <laughs> creative people. So so where they actually are using the data from the book and then they're given a kind of they're working in groups and a series of questions about, all right, how would you do this? What choices would you make here? What would you do if you had another kid, right? So, so getting them, sort of putting them in the place of these these sort of lower middle class, working class families 100 years ago, trying to figure this stuff out. And it's a real eye opener for them uh, in sort of realizing how tight the constraints are and <laughs> were on people's behavior in terms of how, you know, they just didn't have this room to maneuver. Uh, losing a job or having a kid was a major thing that required all of these shifts in ways that, not true now. Yeah, talk about the kinds of questions that the kids come up with. Well, right. I mean, they, you know, so or or they they you know, one, say kid. One group said, "Can we eat one of the kids?" <laughs> you know, can, uh, can we? You know, we could. I mean, we how could young? Set, how how young, young can they go to work? work? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so four like, years so of age, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So they're. Yeah. I mean, in economic terms, right? They're they're trying to figure out how to expand the production or consumption possibilities frontier, right? Mm -hmm. In ways that that ease those ease the constraints. So it's a really it's a really good exercise in the and the book. I, I mean, I use the book. I'm pretty sure it's it's cited in my book on Hayek and the family because um, the because the data is just fascinating, right? What what's in there and and as as you know, Sarah said that they're they're. There are, they wanted to sort of, you know, refute the hypothesis that the poor were poor because they couldn't manage money. And it turns out what they discovered is the reason poor people are poor is because they don't have a lot of money, right? I mean, <laughs> who knew? It's, right? not, it's not bad management. <laughs> right. And so one of the really interesting chapters in the book, and I'm sorry, we're probably digressing yeah. enormously, um, is about funeral insurance, yeah. right? And, and the, um, the author, uh, Maud Pember Reeves says, you know, the only place where he really see something that looks extravagant and that looks irresponsible is that these families tend to spend a lot of money on funeral insurance. But then she notes, you know, when you are liable to lose children, multiple, children. right? Multiple children, or when you could at any moment lose the breadwinner yeah. for the family, one of the signs of respect and of respectability is not having to bury your children in a pauper's grave. Mm. Right. Which is, first of all, chilling to read in 2018. Right. To read this written just yeah. over 100 years yeah. ago. Right. But also explains why family would why a family would choose to spend the kind of money that they do on funeral insurance rather than on shoes for the kids. Yeah. Uh, or right. an extra bedroom. Right. Or whatever whatever else they're trading off against funeral insurance it's a fascinating book and and i think it's really it's very effective for working with students because it's hard to talk to students about say child labor right privileged uh college kids mm -hmm. in the west right. child labor is obviously right. bad on its face mm -hmm. Right. But you give them the grim calculus exercise and they start saying, well, OK, I'm looking at the numbers. And right. can, my, up. Can, can my four year old work? Right. Right. Can yeah. I, would that be a, well, that's a good question? Yeah. Um, you tell me. <laughs> that's that's the like people forget the 
not people forget, I wouldn't say that, but we're so far removed now from those events, even though yeah. they are being experienced in other parts of the world. And yeah. we may complain about it, but we were there once, especially yeah. during the Industrial Revolution and moving away from agriculture. And these smaller yeah. hands can actually go into the looms and clean out those looms while the looms are running. <laughs> then you had tuberculosis, you had tenements, a lot of diseases and no... No medicine. I, I don't think paracetamol or penicillin was discovered at that time. Perhaps it was, but it might not have been rolled out yeah. in, a, in a mass uh, yeah, way. Yeah, penicillin's not until after World War II. Yeah, 1950. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, so the mortality rates and the life expectancy was, well, was high and low, respectively. So, um, yeah. I have a slide yeah. that I use when I do, I have a talk I do on sort of capitalism in the family, and I have a slide that a friend of mine took at a at a, a, a cemetery, I think in Louisiana, and it's one giant headstone with with the names of five or six kids from the same family, wow. all of whom died. And you look at the ages, all of whom died before they were fourteen or so, right? Mm. So you know that's that that was the world, and this was that was like mid mid nineteenth century, yeah. right? So that's that's the world. Yeah, that, yeah. That and uh, when have you written uh, developed anything on that Sarah that book I know we talked about that website and those books in our previous episode and again I'll put the links on it but after your discovery did, and hand I, it over to Steve yeah I did a column on it for uh, Foundation for Economic Education um, and the column is called I think not the poorest people in the district okay. so I'll, I'll send you a link to that yeah. so you can can link link the readers to that I'm trying to think if I've done Steve and I did a, a joint talk at the Association for Private Enterprise Education on using the Grimm calculus exercise yeah. in a classroom. Yeah, that was a it was a teaching session. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if we've done anything else on that. We should. It's it's a little hard to know what to do with it, right? I would think it would be open to some really interesting sort of analysis uh, of the data in there. Um, but I also I I wonder if you could pair it with some fiction or, or something in or, interesting ways. Or I wonder I I'm, I know the answer to this question is yes. I just don't know what. I'm sure someone has done a similar exercise with uh, the working poor or perhaps impoverished folks in other parts of the world, right? It would be interesting to compare people who are dealing with those kind of constraints now versus a hundred plus years ago in that context. Well, it would go well with this is. This is how all of our writing happens. This is this is how all of our projects happen. You're, you want to know what we talk about at dinner? This is what we talk about at dinner. It would go well with Carol Stack's All right, Again, yes, yep, which, right, yep, which yep. is a look yeah, at right. um, sort of community and and uh, um, what would you say non market Ex yeah, sort of exchange and yeah. community exchange among. Uh, uh, poor, oh, poor urban permanent. black families in, in the late sixties. Uh, it's not Midwest. Midwest. We don't know the city, but late, late sixties. Um, a classic bit of ethnography. I'm, now, see, now I want to. Do you have a copy of yeah, my, my book here somewhere? I get it. Right. <laughs> you don't. Yes. You, should, you do. Okay. Because now I got to look and see whether I tied, whether I did that somewhere in the book, whether I, I gave it to somebody, whether I tied stack and, and that together. I, I might have. I mean, it's, both of those are texts that I teach from in that kind of gender class. So certainly, you know, I probably have an exam question somewhere that ties yeah, together. Yeah, I think that you do. Yeah, I think that's probably that. Um, but wow, this book has barely been touched, <laughs> Doctor Squire. It's that's the binding is that's creepy. That's because I read it in TypeScript. Oh, okay. Okay. and oh. fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's why you want us on together. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I want to see these natural slip ups, maybe, and little yeah. arguments that might, uh, or little, pe- little digs that might be going on with one another. <laughs> I figured you were just sitting over there being consumed with regret about having the two most talkative people. <laughs> no, I'm enjoying people. this. This is like watching TV, but being interactive. <laughs> the, the new television. <laughs> As I said, the Sarah and Steve show. And the lighting has um, dipped a little, Sarah. When you got up, you came back and then it brightened up again and then it dipped. So I was there, I thought there might have been your soup uh, emitting light. Um, and well, it's, it's I do my best. It's just possible. <laughs> Anything's possible, really. There, there was another question I had there. Um, it was about that book. Oh, yeah, you were saying about the Grim Calculus. Like there's journals out there, like the Journal for Economic Teaching, and they love that type of yeah. stuff. Yeah. That if yeah. you could uh, yeah. share with us how you actually deal with the Grim Calculus and how you introduce it into lectures and what you get students to do, that'd be a great yeah. paper. To I, I should just write that up. Yeah, we should. As, as we were a couple minutes, we were having that conversation a couple minutes ago. I was thinking to myself, why haven't we written that up for a pedagogy journal? Because yeah, that would sure. be that that would be a good thing to do. Yes, yeah. it would. So it when you're work. writing, then uh, no matter what you're writing, do you go? Do you always get bogged down on the the first paragraph or the first sentence or do you just try to let the flow happen and then edit and how many re-edits do you do? Or is that like, is this something that every, like, no, you're not superhuman and you just do it once off unless it's a blog? <laughs> nobody, nobody here is superhuman, I'll tell you that. Um, I think it varies from project to project for me. First of all, I'll say that the, the best rule of writing ever, for me at least, is I like to have some kind of introduction in place when I start writing. I can't just sort of start in the middle of it. I know people who can start in the middle of the paper and then kind of put a section before it and a section after it and sort of build out that way. Um, weirdly, I'm too linear for that. There's apparently something that I am too linear to okay, do. Okay. Um, so I like to have an introduction in place. That introduction that is in place when I start writing is... 99.99% of the time bears no resemblance to the actual introduction for the paper okay. because I will often write the introduction for the paper that I think I am yep. starting to write. Yep. And then as I write it, uh, Hayek happens, right? right? Things evolve, things change. The order of my sections, as I was saying, will often shift and change. And so th- the last thing I do when I'm writing a paper is write the write the real introduction. Okay. One, one way to think about that, I think, is that 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 first introduction. I'm the same way with introductions. The first introduction is not for your reader; it's for you, right? You're writing it for you. To me, it's about how I clean up my get my own thoughts out. Yeah. And sort of organize it. It's my organizing. It's my clothesline to hang everything on, right? But the paper might end up going in different ways. And so I need to go back at the end and make sure I write the introduction that my reader needs, not the one I need. Are there any hidden tricks that you have discovered yourself along the way that might get you to get started or structure yourselves through writing a paper? I I know I don't want to use the word structure, but is there something that you discovered yourself that works like, I don't know, early morning, late cups of coffee (laughs) first? Do you have to do some tasks or is this writing has to be done on the first thing when you, a first part of your day, you know, are you more creative? Are you more settled when you get to going and then you deal deal with the dishes and the shopping in the supermarket? So 
Dr. Johnson said that nothing concentrates a man's mind so wonderfully as the knowledge that he is to be hanged in the morning. Um, <laughs> by which I mean to say, I like a deadline. <laughs> well, you, just put a whole, you just put a whole new spin on referee number two also. Right. But, but, but I like a deadline, right? So... And, and I never thought I of a deadline like that. No, yeah. Yeah, but it really is. I mean, that's your, that's you know, it. it's a deadline. Yeah. That's you know, you're dead if you don't get in by then. Yeah. So people will often say to me, "Hey, I was wondering if you would write me a thing on, you know, something literary and economic. Just send it to me whenever." Okay. And what I say to them is, "If you want it whenever, you are never going to get it because yeah. it's going to keep going to the bottom of the pile on my desk." Right? Mm. If you actually want something from me. If you really want me to write something, say, hey, Sarah, can I have 2,000 words on this by such and such a date? And I will say yes, and I'll put it in my calendar, and you will have a thing. But for me, the best sort of organizing feature that I can have is a looming deadline, because I I just have too much ego to be late. I, I, it really troubles me to be late with something uh, like even when I was you know expecting and getting ready to have children uh, any day I'd be writing to people and saying I'm really really sorry but like I think I'm going to be going into labor anytime yeah, now yeah, and yeah. I might be late with that thing that I promised you and and I know that when Steve got ill we were both sending you know oh, the people yeah. and going well, I'm really sorry I plan to do it but I swear I, I got the know, answer really we, got, we, <laughs> I mean it. we have this other thing but we're never late and we never cancel it oh my god yeah and so a couple of things this is when students ask me this and I've done some workshops for, for my friends at Mercatus with grad students about this where we talk about you know this you know how, how do you create an environment in which you can write effectively and my my dear friend Emily Shamley Wright has a whole sort of you know, set of really good answers that work for her. And, you know, and so she says, oh, that's a great system you have there. And then she turns to me and goes, well, and I say, I got no system. <laughs> I got, yeah. I got. So, I, I, but a couple things. I think one serious piece of advice is faced with a blank screen, just write. Just start writing. Even if you think it's nonsense, just start writing. Um, uh, it's amazing when you do that, how, how order emerges from it. I, I sat down the other day with this current paper, just intending to jot a couple of section headings down. And I thought, uh, I really should probably maybe just write a couple sentences of that introduction, right? The introduction yeah. for me. And, and I look up, it's half an hour <laughs> later and I've written the whole introduction and, you know, it's a page and a half worth of introduction, right? And I think it's just, you gotta convince yourself that it's okay to just get started and, and, and do it. Yeah. For, I mean, there are ways to trick yourself into yeah. that. Because, um, so, I will, in general, unless I'm working on something enormous, mm. uh, I will, for most academic papers, will take notes, uh, you know, on the computer okay. for it. I used to back, you know, I'm old enough that I used to do this on three by five cards, but I've reluctantly joined, you know, the 21st century. <laughs> the 20th century. I, I use three by five <laughs> cards. Streaming into the 19th century. We're, we're, I'm still me. working on dragging her out of the 16th century. <laughs> right. a lot but, of the time, but anyway. So. So I'll take notes um, in in uh, a Word document and just sort of keep a, a running set of that so that even when I s am first setting out to write, I don't have a blank page. I've got a document full of notes, yeah. mm -hmm. That's right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And if you want to get cute, you can sort of rearrange your quotes into the order you think you might use them, or you can just use this as kind of a running bank um, of stuff to work off of. And I think it feels less daunting when you can say, oh, I've got, you know, six pages of quotations I'm planning to use in some way or another in this paper. And then it's not so scary thinking about, and I got to come up with, you know, 40,000 words. Right. It's a piece of cake when you've already got 10. Mm. And that's really mm. important. Like this paper I'm working on right now has kind of been on my to-do list for a number of months. And I had to turn in a, a sort of outline abstract of it earlier on, but I knew the deadline was August 31st. So I'm turning to it now. And I think when you've got that situation, having an outline or an abstract or just a, you know, I had 650 words worth of notes and ideas that when I would think of something, I'd open that file, jot it down, knowing I'm not going to write this paper for another month or two or whatever, Mm -hmm. but throwing that into the file. And then when you sit down, right, to actually start writing, you've actually got these things there that you can work with. What I was going to say before, though, see, like the thing for me, some people say, well, I need three hours where I sit down and I turn off my, you know, internet and I, you know, I have to focus and, and, um, See, and I'm, I'm strange in that, that I don't need, I don't need that. In fact, it's often not helpful to me. I actually like being able to, I have the ability to write, get distracted, and then go back to where I was and kind of pick it up right from where I was, right? I, I, you know, I have, what do I call it? Adult onset, uh, internet driven attention deficit disorder, <laughs> right? So Dr. Johnson know, diagnosed you with that, did he? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm the guy who can write a page and then go, do Facebook for five minutes, right? Okay, to look okay. at the sports section of the paper, right? And then come back and pick up where I left off. Mm-hmm. Or when I was, you know, when I was department chair, I, I, I hated closing my door because, you know, I wanted students to feel welcome and so on. And my colleagues sometimes couldn't believe how I could write, work on professional writing with my door open and people interrupting me every so often. And I just, for whatever reason, I have the ability, those interruptions don't normally throw me off too much. But I think one of the things, and we've talked about this before, one of the things I need to be better at is we've all had this where you're writing, you get interrupted and you come back to it and you were in the middle of a sentence and you have no damn idea where now the sentence was going to go. So I try when people come in, I say, I need, let me finish this sentence or this thought or whatever it is. Right. Um, because, or, or leave myself at least two words of notes about where it's going to go. Yeah. Otherwise you come back to what. <laughs> Where was this going, right? And that's really frustrating. And and I extend that actually so that if I'm working on a you know, not a not like a blog post or a column, if I'm working on a longer paper, um, when I'm done writing for the day, the last thing that I do is write the first two sentences of the next part of the thing that I'm writing. Okay. So that first of all, um, I remember where I was, right? Because as we all, you know, crash rapidly into late middle age um it gets harder and harder to remember where you were but also because it gives me that sense of momentum right Right. i'm coming back to it and i know i'm coming back to it because i already started the next bit right and i'll do that my version of that is to sometimes leave myself a little like note that basically says now literally will say next you need to then you need to yeah and sometimes i'll Mm -hmm. what i'll do is where i left off i'll just quickly Highlight it in red or yep. turn the font red or something yeah. so I know that's where I was. I do the same thing. I'll also, uh, sometimes if I'm writing along and things are going really well and I hit a pothole where I know a thing has to go, but I don't want to sort of get up and find the thing 
or get up and, you know, get, I don't want to wait to get that book from the library or wait to get back to my home office instead of my office at Liberty Fund or, or for whatever reason. Um, early drafts of my stuff are often filled with, uh, highlighted sentences that say stuff like, put that thing from Macbeth here. Okay. Or, yeah. Adam Smith says something, find it. So yeah. instead of um, looking for it and now and having that interruption, yeah. do it another time. Right. Yeah, yeah, great idea. Yeah. Great tip. High quote, high, yeah, high quote goes here. Right, because yes. I yes. know that the thing that I want is out there, yep. Yep. but I know that if I go look for it, I'm going to lose two yep. hours yep. Yep. of time. And if you're already in the writing group, yep. right? And if yep. you know what that thing is that's going to go there well enough that you can you know, mm. keep going without having it precisely right. Then you do have to go back, put it in um, yeah. and also make sure that what you said about it remains true. Once you look at what true, yeah, Smith yeah. or Hayek actually yes. said. And I think yeah, and I, that can be a flaw, yeah, yeah, not right. of yours, but a flaw that right. we see when people are working on stuff yeah. they know really, really well. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes they're so familiar with it that they actually write about what they think they know it yeah. says rather than what yeah. it actually yeah. says. And, and another, so another quick thought here, right? I mean, I think if, if as a writer, you find yourself getting into flow, yeah. right? Where, where you are just, and, and you, you know, don't, don't let yourself get interrupted. Let ride that out until you're just out of gas. And, and so again, another weird thing with me is I need music to write. I was just going to ask. Write. Yeah. I cannot write what, see, see, can you see the face? Right. I, I can't write without music. And I, and it's, it, um, it, it's like what it does. It's like what some people need white noise. Right. Mm. And, and okay. And for me, the music has it, but what she's going to tell you in a second is if it has lyrics, the lyrics get in my head and they yeah, interfere yeah, with whatever. Yeah, I, yeah, 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 but yeah. see, and I, I don't have that. In fact, I know for me, I know when I've been in flow writing is I will, I will kind of stop for a second and go, I have, no idea what the last four songs were I, that were playing, right? Because, yeah. oh, didn't I just start this CD? It's over all right? Yeah. Because uh, the music has just completely kind of receded into the background, and it kind of, I, the, it lays this sort of foundation from which I then can do other things. If it's quiet, weirdly, if it's quiet, I hear everything, right? And and I and I, I find that to be more distracting than having the music on, right? I wrote, I mean, every, almost, you know, all three of my books, I think in the acknowledgments, at least two of them, I thank some particular CD or some particular, right? Because that was the one where that was a lot of the book was written listening to that, right? So that's fine. Yeah, beats per minute matter for how I write. I mean, there's weird, right? Certain kinds of music can be writing better. So you mentioned Mozart earlier on and Rush in the previous episode. So would they be (laughs) one of the two or the two top ones that you might listen to? I will just, so in the old days, right? In the old days, I would have particular CDs. So, so the, the, the last book was written, a lot of it was written to a, a, a Buddy Rich tribute CD about big band jazz music. Okay. I believe in the macro book, I thanked Stop Making Sense, uh, Stop, Talking Head Stop Making Sense, which, okay. which I used a lot. That's something about the rhythm of that CD and their, their rhythm section work. So, but now I tend to just leave my, my iTunes on shuffle and whatever comes up, comes up. Um, there's not, I don't, now I don't think about are there particular kinds of music I, I, I will write to better or worse, uh, it, whatever. I just need to have the music going as a way to sort of make me feel comfortable. Headphone, white noise machine, yeah. pot of tea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> white no- I, 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 what I'll do is I'll edit out of tea. 
<laughs> so, so, I haven't so, tried that. Yeah. So the other, pot. I hear good things. Yeah. The <laughs> other, the other thing for me, I've discovered over the years. Weird. I tend to write better after lunch. I don't yeah. know. I don't know why. I think it's like in the morning. I need to do my usual kind of stuff in the morning that kind of clears out things, right? And and maybe it's years of being an administrator where I felt like in the morning I had to do all the administrative stuff. Mm. But even when I was on sabbatical, I found that I just write I, whatever my energy level or my focus is tends to be better after lunch. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure why. Yeah, no, same here. I the organizational stuff. I need you know I need a little while to sort of complain about the fact that I actually have to write <laughs> rather than just everyone right. being able to recognize my brilliance. I need two hours understand to understand what I'm gonna what I would have said had right. I bothered to write it down, and they should just all know this. Right? I need two hours to procrastinate. Yeah. <laughs> but if you know that about yourself, right, you right. write that into your time, right? So what am I going to, what do I do in the morning? Well, maybe I'll take some notes. Maybe yes. I'll, uh, you know, possibly clean my desk. Possibly not. Answer a bunch of email, you know, whatever, kind of, kind of clear the deck. Forgot go shopping at Amazon. Go shopping yeah, at Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Wait a while, you know, and then yeah. sort of, all right, all right, all right, I'll get down to yeah, it. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And some people write, like, again, my friend Emily uh, writes early in the morning, right? And I'm like, nope. Well, Hans Eichholz, who's a, a colleague of mine here at Liberty Fund, did his entire book on Thomas Jefferson between the hours of, I think, five and eight in the morning because mm. <clears throat> he had little kids at home. So he'd get up, yeah. uh, write for three hours and, you know, get them to school, go into Liberty Fund, right? Which yeah. is how Trollope did it, right? So it's like who? Oh, here, we right, here we go. Right, this is what happens. By when, the way, when Hans so, hears this, and you just compared him to Trollope, he's, he's going to be very proud. So Anthony Trollope, the great sort of uh, Victorian, great Victorian novelist, um, who anybody who likes politics or economics should should read and will enjoy Trollope, um, wrote an autobiography that almost killed his literary career because he revealed his writing process. Okay. Um, and I did a piece about this for for. It was either for Foundation of Economic Education or it was for um, um, Liberty Fund. Fraser. Fraser. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I'll find it. I'll send yeah. you the link. Um, so he wrote about his writing process, and he said, "Here's what I do: I get up every morning at like 4:30. Mm -hmm. I write 10,000 words, and then I go to my job at the post office. And the next day, I get up, I do the same thing." And the next day I get up and I do the same thing. And if I finish a novel at 6,500 words, I start the next novel and write until I've written my, right. So he wrote the same number of words every single day. But not 10,000 a day. He, he'd, have been a, he'd aim for 10,000. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't remember wow. what his, what yeah. his, it's in the, but, but, uh, you know, and it's incredible. And people read this and they were horrified. They're like, where is the, artistic suffering yes. where is the waiting for the muse to descend and fill you with right no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that but um you know and they were just sort of horrified that his process was so business-like and mechanical yeah. mm -hmm. and for a lot of people it took sort of the the magic out of the novels and out of the world that he creates. Whereas for me, that's the reality you know, of it, as isn't somebody, it? As somebody who writes, I'm like, dude, <laughs> right. Yeah. right? You are my, right? you are a rock star. You are yeah. my model. Yeah. 
right? <laughs> and when I was writing my dissertation, my dad used to send me inspirational Anthony Trollope quotes about writing. Of course he did. Which excludes like everything you ever needed to know about me right there. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> send me my, 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 it's yeah, 8 o'clock well, in the morning. I'm getting email that says it's 8 o'clock. Do you know so, how many words so, Trollope would have well, written well, by yeah. now? Dad was a bit professor right and my my dad was was a business school is so you know what well, retired business school professor right accounting and finance so my dad's like like are you done yet <laughs> you, you need to get a job are you done is it done well this was i mean dad sending charlotte quotes yeah, was his the English professor yeah. way of saying are you done yet are you working <laughs> time is money kid well, um, well, well. and but yeah so you know i admired that kind of process and but really uh, I think it doesn't matter much what your process is or what your routine is if you can get right. into some kind of routine, this even if the routine looks to everyone else as insane yeah. as my, yeah. you know, piles of, of books and, uh, and, and it, it, with a teapot. In the yeah, yeah. And a teapot and, you know, yeah. And I think, I, I think that's right. I tell, again, I tell grad students this all the time, which is, it's more important to have a system than what the system is in particular. I mean, mm -hmm. I, so like with time management stuff, it turns out um, I, I, I reinvented on my own getting things done or whatever that the, the guy's big system is, right? I basically figured that out by myself for the most part. And so when I talk about this, right, I say, well, you know, I didn't actually read the book, but, but it turns out I do a lot of the things that he recommends in there. But I, that, that works for me. Right? I figured out yeah. what works for me. So figure out something that works you know that that works for you. I just remember yeah, the I, name of that author, Stephen Pressfield, the legend of Bagger Vance, and okay. that's when, that's what I heard as well. And he gave examples like the one you've just given me there, where people you just get up and you do it. So if you're a morning person, you just write yep. for your few hours, and it's like anything else, like exercise. You know, you just have to get into the habit, and if you stop and lose the habit, you'll end up not being able to. And I think um, Stephen King does it too. He just gets up and writes his novels day in, day out, and he just doesn't yeah. wait for the muse and the and inspiration so, and, to just get on with it. Right, and so that, right, and there's an important point that I want to I want to draw out too, which is, you know, a lot of especially young scholars think that social media they want to stay away from social media because it it sucks their time and all these sorts of things. And it I and does. it does, and I get that. But, but what I often say in response is you can use social media, not so much Twitter, but certainly Facebook or blogging, right, as writing, right? I mean, if, you know, if you follow me on Facebook, you know, sometimes that I will test out arguments there, right? And sometimes they're long, they're, you know, a couple hundred words, right? But that's writing, that counts, right? That counts. And so if you're, if, as long as you're still sort of, I mean, I've been, you know, I've had a couple of hospital stays in the last year and, and sort of times when I, when my energy levels weren't there, but, but I never sort of walked away from Facebook or from, from that kind of stuff because at the very least it keeps that juices going. You're still writing. You're still thinking. You still have to organize your thoughts. And then when you get back to academic writing after, you know, my case for a couple of months or whatever, get back to it, right? It doesn't feel so strange. You're still, you're, you've still been exercising those muscles, right? In a different kind of way. Yeah. And I, I actually want to take that in a little bit of a, of a different direction, but while we're on the, the topic of social media and writing for it, I, you know, I don't, I'm not in the classroom anymore. I used to teach a lot of writing. Um, and my father and I have a writing textbook out that's in its oh. edition. Um, yeah. Again, we'll send you a link available yeah. for weddings, bat mitzvahs, whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, but in your family, that's not out of the question. No, I know. Um, that's the wedding uh, gift, is it? <laughs> 
exactly. Perfect. Yeah, Perfect one again. Um, but if I were going to design a writing course now for, you know, ad, advanced writing students, or if I was going to do a writing course for maybe incoming graduate students, one of, I think that the course I would design would start off with, you know, write an academic article. And then all of the following assignments would require them to shrink yep. that article oh, down yes. for different yes. forms of social media. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'd have them write the article. Then I would have them write the, uh, you know, sort of long form magazine article version of their academic piece. Then I'd have them write the blog post of their academic piece. Then I'd have them write the Facebook post of their, um, of their academic piece. And then I'd have them write the tweet. Yep. Yep. Right. Because I think distill, distill, distill is Mm -hmm. part of it. What are you really writing about? What are you really writing about? What are you really writing about as part of it? I know these hand gestures are going to be super helpful for your podcast. (laughs) It's it's like you're measuring Steve's head. (laughs) Right. Eastern European over here. I can't, I can't talk if I'm sitting on my hands. Um, But also because I think given the, the prevalence of social media, given the importance of social media and given, you know, at this exact moment, how, incendiary what we say on social media can be we need to be very thoughtful about how we're presenting our academic work and how we're presenting our research out Mm -hmm. there the cutest and snappiest way to tweet our you know our paper on you know how the working poor spend their money uh might not be the best way to convey it if we don't want to get in trouble Mm. right and and so I, I just it's a real I think it's a real skill to think about each of those ways of presenting the same kind of research yep. as a different genre of writing. Uh, I also think um, that um, no, I can't remember because you interrupted me. <laughs> well, while you think about that, damn it, what uh, else do I think? You should have written it down. <laughs> it's a different. I mean, what's great about that too is that the rhetoric is different for each yes. one, right? You're, you different know, it's a genre, diff- different, different rhetoric, jo- yeah. right? Different kind of persuasion. So years ago, okay, don't no, no, go ahead. Down, All right, right. So years ago, I think this <laughs> is yeah, my friends, my friends at Mercatus, and when I was a grad student, we, we sort of got to thinking about it this way. Whenever you did an academic piece, you should think about what's the policy piece you could write based on that and then what's the op-ed piece you could that's write. what i was just going to okay. say right? right you gotta you gotta sort of multi-purpose right. your material when right. you can right and and it's and it's one it's it's you get multiple publications out of it but again it's that same exercise in taking the same material and thinking now i got a different audience i have to write at a different level i've got to condense the ideas down this way i mean i think one of the things when i was an administrator one of the real challenges for me was writing uh, like grant proposals where I had a very strict word limit, right? And you learn, and, and writing those weekly columns, especially for fee when I was at about, you know, it varied from time to time, but, you know, 800, 900 words, right? Learning to write within that, that's a different kind of deadline, right? It's a, it's a writing to write within that constraint was extremely uh, helpful in sort of learning to write concisely uh, and, and getting arguments across in the most sort of efficient ways possible right um and i and i think that you know lord knows academics 
could cut down their word counts <laughs> in most cases, right? So I think the experience, and I would say to grad students in any discipline, right? These kind of things we're just talking about now are really important exercises in getting your ideas across in the least number of words possible or imagining, you know, we talked about the elevator speech for a job. Mm. I see my undergraduates, how would you explain this concept to your parents over dinner, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so thinking about, and in the end, see, now I'm going now. In the end, what this all comes down to is, is learning how to teach what you know, mm. yeah. right? What you're doing in all these different exercises that we're talking about is you're teaching and you're teaching to different audiences. So therefore you have to think in terms of how do I teach this thing in the way that's relevant to this particular audience. Right. So <clears throat> one of the, the best pieces of writing advice I got was a two word question that my dissertation director used to ask me, which was, so what? Yes. <laughs> you write, you know, if you bring in a 40 word, a 40 page chapter, you'd read it and you go, so what? Right. I, I wish what? I had that stamp as a referee, right? Just as, right. so what? Why the hell should I care? Yeah. Right. And, and I think that's very important. Um, with all of this kind of work, it's very easy to think that just because I think it's like super exciting that like this is here and you know, this is over here, like people should be excited because I'm excited, right? It would be nifty if the world worked that way because then, you know, I'd be making $2 million. But um, <laughs> my job is to explain to people why they should care, right? And that so what is going to be different in an academic context than it's going to be in a uh, op-ed context, or then it's going to be on Facebook, or then it's going to be in any of these other kind of venues mm -hmm. for talking about ideas that we may have, right? So while, um, you know, I may talk about the same Shakespeare sonnet in an academic paper, as I would in a column for uh, Foundation for Economic Education, or as I might in a lecture for Institute for Humane Studies, or as I might in a, a sort of a, a public talk at a Students for Liberty um, conference mm -hmm. or the like, the the way that I will use that that tool, right, or that that piece of material that I, I, I tease economists that poems are my data sets, right. Yeah. So the way that I'll use a particular data set and the things I will tell people they should care about and the reasons I will give them for caring about it will be different in every context. Mm. Right. And I think that that that's a skill you have to learn and a skill you have to practice. Um, and you also have to be, you know, willing to let go of. But the really important thing about it is like this is the one time that the semicolon appears. Right. In the, right. I mean, you have to let be willing to let go of sometimes the, the bit that most interests your academic side. Right. Mm. And remember the stuff that like, you know, other people care about. Yep. When it comes to refereeing a piece of work and say your your piece of work has been refereed and you put it out there, you put all your work and effort into it. And it comes back saying something like um, resubmit or revise and yep. resubmit and it's rejected. How? <laughs> right. So. <laughs> Like, do you, do you do you think your work, your finalized piece of work, is the final edit and it should automatically be submitted, or do you? I mean, obviously, there's yeah. right. But how how do you but deal with? It doesn't work that way. Yeah, but you don't know who's refereeing your piece of work, right. so you can't it's get in like touch the with. It's like seven them. stages of grief or whatever, right? I mean, so you know, I 
my that's always the same with me. I get the referee's report back and I go, I start cursing, right? Idiot, you idiot, moron! You don't know what you're talking about, right? Oh, really? You're gonna you're complaining about that, right? You're I mean, just mad because I didn't say yeah, you. right, right. <laughs> um, and and you know, in fairness, you read the referee's report sometimes. You go, okay, that you know, maybe one good point in there, but. But it's always, you know, your, your, your ego takes a hit and your, your defensiveness comes up. And so I think this, this again, this is advice for young scholars. In the old days, we used to say, put it in a drawer. Right now, I just say, close the file, close the referee report, put it over there, you know, store it somewhere, come back to it in a week. Nothing's going to happen in a week that matters. Come back to it in a week, okay? And when you look at it in a week, what you're going to think is, oh, well, the other reaction I tend to have is, oh, there's so much, so much work, work, so much work to fix this paper. And then you come back in a week and you look at it again and two things happen. You go, all right, they're not that unreasonable. This is actually going to make the paper better. And you and you realize, and it's not as much work as I thought. It was going to right. be. Almost, you know, 80% of the time, both right. of those are true. But even but, referees but can come back with conflict, conflicting views. Yes. Which, which is the other thing That's you realize point. that you don't have to, uh, take every yeah. suggestion mm. made for the revision of the paper, right. right? I think that, um, I think that if it's a large suggestion that you decide not to take mm. up, to you gotta talk to the editor about it. You have to say, look, this is what they're asking. It, it happens with my stuff sometimes. People are like, well, what we really need here is an incredibly long discussion about some economic issue about which Sarah knows nothing, right? Mm. And I will write, I've written to editors and said, look, I just, you know, that's that's beyond the scope of what I can do. If, you know, if you want that, this has to be a co-authored piece because I am reminding you that I am not an economist mm. and I, I cannot give you that. I will add a note sometimes saying, you know, there's trying to point to some work that's been done on the economic issue that I can't cover fully and admitting that I can't cover it fully and that it's beyond the scope of the paper. And, and usually that is, that is enough to get over that, but you can, you know, it's, it's okay. a conversation. Yeah. Revisions that's are a, conversations yeah. Yeah. between you and the editors. Yeah. And you can say, look, I'm, I, I took up X and Y and Z, but I had to let a B and see go because, uh, you know, and, and, I you think, know, I think this is incorrect yep. or I'm not capable of giving you that. Or if I were to give you that, I need another six months mm. on the paper. And some journals and some editors will ask you to write that cover letter, right? That gives you that so the space to make that argument about <laughs> why you did this and why you didn't do right. that. And I've asked students to do the equivalent of that too in the revision process to say, I want a cover letter with your next draft that explains to me what you did and why you changed this. And, but, but, and I think. And you can sometimes write that into your introduction. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you started working as I have kind of in this weird little, you know, interdisciplinary niche. Right. So either I will at the outset say, I know I'm going to need a, a co-author on this one. Mm -hmm. Or when I'm writing the introduction, I will say, you know, this is explicitly the kind of work that I am doing. Here is explicitly yes. the kind of work that I am not doing. I did a I did a paper on uh, the intellectual history project on Margaret Fell Fox, who's a 17th century Quaker. And the way that she talked about rights and where they came from. And I knew as I was writing the paper that a bunch of philosophers were going to be reading it. And I said, I can feel the arguments about rights theory 
and natural rights and natural law lurking out there. Mm. And I don't want to, that's like several cans of worms that Mm. I don't want to open. So it just says in my introduction, this is not a paper about rights theory. Mm. This is a paper about how one particular 17th century thinker wrote about rights Mm. and where they came from and just very clearly bracketing off. I am not doing this. That's your job. Here is what I'm doing. And that is my job. And that was very helpful. You might want to tell the story of the first paper we wrote together. Too. I think I did that on the last one. Okay. All right. Then we won't do that again. Mm-hmm. So, one, so one other thing to say here too, I think ref, this is a, a thing with referee. I mean, referees should never be refereeing papers in ways that where the referee's report is, here's the paper I think you should have written. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not really your job as a referee. Your job as a referee is to say, <laughs> like like the old was it, ladies home journal can this marriage be saved right here can this paper is there something here that's valuable and if there is if you don't think this draft gets it but if you think there's something here that's valuable a good referee gets inside the paper and says here's how to make this paper into something better right i i get what you're trying to do here it doesn't really work here's how you could make it do what i think you're trying to do but if the referee's report is is no, you should write this paper over here, which is the paper I think that's just not helpful. And it's really not what referees should be doing. I always want to say to those referees, then you go write it. Because mm. I, I ain't writing it, right? I refereed a, a paper there recently for the Journal of Cultural Economics, I think. And I was a third referee. And I was like, oh, I have to look. I accepted it. They gave me something like a 48 day, uh, day deadline. And I think it was on the 44th, I decided to <laughs> get cracking on it. And yep. it, it made me, it made me, yeah, yeah, it made me more productive and read it in depth. And I said, yeah, yeah, look at this. This is interesting. And it coincidentally, it happened after, it coincidentally happened after my interview with you, Sarah. Can you, have I lost? Oh. Have you lost me? Uh, no, we're back now. Oh, yeah. Coincidentally, I got these, uh, I, I was asked to referee it after my interview with you, Sarah. Um, and, I noticed with after I read it and I gave my feedback and that I noticed that what Steve was saying, some of the other referees were kind of bringing them down a different avenue. And you also refer to it as well when, when it came to uh, philosophy or your the philosophers. And some of them suggested, maybe you should bring in some behavioral economics into it. And maybe you should relate it to what was going on in um, the, this century or this decade. And, I was able to see through that and suggested, well, you don't have to take those viewpoints. Why not try to ring fence and say, yeah, we're staying back in the period of Adam Smith and Jane Austen. And we want yeah. to make the comparisons of um, that type of period. And yeah. you don't have to bring it into the, this, this particular century, not even this decade. And I don't know what the, what, whether, what the feedback, uh, how they took that feedback, but I thought it would be not a better paper, but I thought it'd be going back to the initial idea of the paper rather than trying to write two or three papers. And I think if, if that was the case, the author probably would have just left it in drawer and be done with it. Right. And so I, I think of that, right. We were, this takes us right back to the beginning as all good conclusions should, right? Um, <laughs> I think that this is where that rewriting your introduction when your paper is done becomes so important because you can then use your introduction not only to say what you're going to do and why you're going to do it, but also to do a little bit of sort of defensive rhetorical judo where you say, 
some of you may object that you know <laughs> it is it is conceivable that some what, may wonder what why a reader might think yes and that's what I su- that's why I suggested I mean, doing the introduction just say this is of the period set in the 18th right, century right that just says you know we're going to focus explicitly on this or mm-hmm. I am bracketing off the discussion I realize that my topic touches on issues of you know uh the history of uh centralized banking mm-hmm. or some other thing that Sarah doesn't know anything about <laughs> I, I leave that discussion to my colleagues in economics, yeah. what I am focusing on instead is on what people thought banks did when they wrote poems about banks or, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever craziness I'm mm-hmm. focusing on. And right? I think yeah. junior faculty are so, and young scholars are just so pressured to get things accepted, right, that they think they have to go through the checklist and do everything the referees say and that they have no agency sort of in pushing back and saying, no, I, my paper's not about that, right? And so I, so I think it's good to encourage younger scholars to exercise that agency. It's okay to say to the editor, look, I've got conflicting reports here. Here's how I want to go. Or this is, he's asking too much or she's asking too much of me that I want to, you know, this is not what the paper's about. It's okay. And one of the reasons it's okay to do that is at the end of the day, there's so many journals now, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you'll find another home for it. As, as my, as my uh, uh, mentors at George Mason used to say, you should have no unpublished papers. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so there's always a home for everything. Yeah. Right. And and it's OK. I mean, I mean, you have I'm, to step down a little bit in journal quality to avoid wasting your time with this referee who doesn't get what you're trying to do. Then OK. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, let it let it be read into the record that sometimes referees know exactly what yes. they're talking about mm-hmm. and manage to put their finger right yeah. smack in the middle so, of the problem that you knew was there in right. your paper. But you were ignoring you either hadn't figured out quite what the problem was or you were praying like hell that no oh, one yeah. would notice. And which is right. Young, young scholars, one of the smart things for young scholars to do when they get a paper back with referees reports that we're talking about is to go to one of their colleagues, a more senior colleague, and say, hey, look at these, look at what these referees said. Is this reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, and, and, and don't be afraid to seek out that advice. You're not in this by yourself to figure out all these nuances. There's, there's you know, your, what your colleagues are there to help most most of your time. Yeah. And I, I think I think that's important because I, which is another way Facebook is useful. Yeah, too, right? right. Writing and researching can feel really, really lonely and really, really isolating. Some of us enjoy being lonely and isolated, but <laughs> for the crazy <laughs> extroverts. Right. That can be hard. Right. And having people to bounce stuff off yep. of. Right. Mm-hmm. And I will, you know, because I tend to write things that are a little, you know, Strange. outside the outside the, the normal, normal boundaries, boundaries or, yeah. or whatever, discussion yeah. or whatever. Um, I will, I will run stuff by people and go, Hey, does this sound like, is this at least interesting? Yep. Right. Does yeah. this sound like a thing yeah. that like, does it sound remotely plausible that it's like market know, research. <laughs> well, I, and I've described my Facebook, you know, I've described my Facebook page as a 5,000 person seminar, uh, but in a bar with, you know, music and sports and all this other stuff going on, right? And really good and food bar fights. and bar occasional bar yeah. fight. Yeah. Um, but, but the fact, but they're there, I mean, when you use it seriously, you know, you can, you can throw ideas out there in a very low risk environment and, and see if it sticks. And if, and if it turns out you said something idiotic and you want to delete it, you can delete it, yeah. but, but you learn something, right. That might be really helpful for whatever professional project you're working on. That's true, yeah. Like, it just reminds me of what you were saying earlier on about um, write something 
Like a, a previous guest I had, Morton Jervin, he said, always write something that has eventual home for it in terms of, you know, he, he writes to perhaps be able to make money from it, for example, to write his yeah. book. So if he was to write on issues in Africa, he has a book in mind. You know, or yep. as you mentioned, uh, the two you mentioned, if you were to write a course, Sarah, you would break it down into a blog post and all of these different uh, types of uh, content. And another uh, an example of a guest I had who was able to write, he didn't have to be at his desk or find time, but he wrote his book, Manu Sadia. He wrote his Treconomics book on his iPhone. So when he was walking around, he had ideas. He'd write it, type it all into his notepad and he developed his thought process from that and his book came from it then. As a result of that, so these these so, are all little, little hacks. So. I, so I have to tell you a story now, right? One, so yeah, you when, do the same, then, yeah, or something similar. I know. So I'm I, telling I, you, I, we, we should be at a bar right now. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> next time. Well, yeah. it's a good time for me in Ireland, so um, I have a, yeah. I have a cans of pours in the fridge. I can't do anything like that on my phone. I know. I, even I had a I had a face yesterday. I had a sort of complex Facebook message I had to write, and I'm looking at my. I can't. No, I can't do this on the phone. I have to do this in front of an actual computer, right? And one of the things early on in our relationship, you know, I can remember what the particular details, but but she started writing something on her iPhone, like some long, complicated. Oh, I know what it was. Oh, it was a complicated email, email of advice to a young scholar, scholar right? And Ooh. she's like doing it on her iPhone. I'm like. No, uh, how? I can't, right? How do you, I can't? I've, I've written entire columns on my iPhone, yeah. sent them to the editor, gotten them back, edited them. On the and iPhone? Sent them back. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, not? it's a computer in your hand, isn't it, at the end of the day? It's, and I travel it's a just, lot. It's in your hand. It's too small. I need, I need space. I, I travel a lot, right? So... You know, especially if it's something that needs a quick turnaround or if I happen to get an idea for a column while I'm on an airplane and airplanes are fabulous places to write. They're vastly under underestimated a great paper. as writing spaces um, because mostly there's like enough people around you that you don't feel lonely. Nobody particularly bothers you and someone will bring you tea whenever you ask. It's lovely. And you almost so, have that white noise as well with the engine going yeah, on. I know, right. um, I know so, you way, know, like, I want to be able to do a whole column. You know, on on an iPad or in my case on an iPhone, right? Because yeah, yeah, right. here's why I can't write on my phone, and it goes back to an earlier thing we were talking about. Mm. I can't write on my phone because I can't work in an environment where the technology and the software is such that I don't feel completely comfortable with it, and where it's not. I need to have it organized in ways that maximize my efficiency. So, for example, my version of Word. Right is extremely customized. I've got the little toolbar. I'm looking at hers on her screen right now. There's like nothing. It's like the generic word. Mine's mine's completely customized. They have all kinds of shortcuts yeah. and stuff on there. I had no idea. I hope you heard what she just said. Hang on. No, is this your toolbar on Word? Is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't know right. it could be customized. The ribbon and the toolbar, right? I have them completely customized, right? I, I'm with you on that, Sarah. <laughs> I just bought a new computer, and, and I had to remember how to export it so you can just import it right to the new computer. Yeah. Anyway, so it's completely customized so that I have all these shortcuts that I, I don't need to go into the menus and find things. Boom, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. And on a phone, I just can't – I don't feel that level of comfort on the phone, right? It's like when I sit down to write – and my my version of Excel is customized, not as deeply as my Word, right? But it's the same. When I want to use those programs, I have to feel like 
like they're seamless with me. It's like driving a car that you've been driving for years and you know exactly how it's going to behave. And I just can never get that level of comfort on the phone. Even with the word app installed, it's just not the same. I can't, I can't do it. I mean, I certainly couldn't do serious academic writing on the phone. Yeah. Like if you got to put in footnotes, right? right? You can't, you can't do that but even, on the iPhone. I but can't even write a comment. Yeah. Somebody needs to come up with better footnoting software and now you're going to get email from all of your listeners recommending footnoting software to me and i apologize for that do you do that do you use any other software like um evernote or scrivener you know scrivener nothing like that no just a simple word document i honestly think this is generational i i i don't and i also i do so much by memory it's actually you know she uh, when i write okay Mm. I, I I have a near photographic memory for books and for quotes and things, right? And so I can tell you like that that Hayek quote is on the upper left hand part of a page somewhere, right? So I almost have no notes. I don't keep like three by I never did three by five cards. I never did stuff like right. I never had stuff like that. I just right, see, and, and if I need it, I know where it is. I mean when I was younger I probably did more of that, but certainly now, right? I I know where it is. If I need it, I can find it. Um Sometimes I'll jot myself a little note. And if you open my books, sometimes in the that sort of the frontispiece of the book and that blank white page, there'll be a few little handwritten notes. It'll say page 78 and then a little short reminder of what's on page 78. But that's about it. And I, I you know, it's only even me keeping a I didn't really keep a calendar until, you know, within the last decade anyway, when my, you know, when things were busy enough. Right. But but other than that, I did I did a lot of stuff on memory. Um, Sarah, so, um, uh, three by five method. Another author, Ryan Holiday, uses it, and he uses that, yeah. uses that to write his books. I don't know if you ever heard of Ryan Holiday. He wrote "Ego is the Enemy" and "The Obstacle Is the Way" and yeah. a couple of the Stoic books as well. So that's his method, and it, it seems very effective, you know. And he's it's able to move it about by hand and that's yes, you and can. That kind of thing, yeah. You can, I'm, I'm waving my arms around again, listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, can, you can sort of adjust things to where you want them to go, which is nice, or refile them into different orders. Um, it also makes it easy to recycle. If you don't want to recycle or reuse quotes from project to project, if you're you're reusing some of the right, same material. Right. But, but what I do for – so if you really want to get in the nitty-gritty of how my note-taking process, such as it is, works, um, since I'm in the middle of that right now, uh, I, I start by sort of reading all the things until I have a pretty good handle on what I think it is that I want to say. Hmm. Um, uh, while I'm reading, I'm underlining or, or sticking post-it notes in and, and that kind of thing. Once I have read through my stuff, I'll then pick them back up and start transcribing the notes. Okay. What I'll do is when I start transcribing from any work, um, I've got – You know, doubtful and dangerous is what I'm reading right now about Elizabethan England and political succession. Right. So I will write I will type out the entire bibliographical entry that will eventually go in the bibliography of the paper. Mm. Type that out. Underneath that, I will put the notes that I take from that book, each with the the page number at the end Mm. so that when I'm writing the paper, basically my footnotes are done. Cool. Right. I just I cut and paste or copy paste the quote from the, the document where I'm transcribing all the notes into the body of the paper, yeah. uh, grab the bibliographical information and the page number for the footnote, 
So you know where everything's going to be if you have to go look back for, on it. Yes. And, and then and the, the bibliography is the worst thing to do, really, at the end of your paper when you have it all done and you haven't got your bibliography all straightened out yet right. and having to go back to all of that is the worst. Right. Ever. And so then it's not it's not so bad because it's just right. another sort of copy paste. So, and right. that that helps keep me organized. I used to do all of that with three by five cards mm. um, because and I did that especially with my dissertation, because when you're writing 300, 400 pages, a document like that gets pretty darned unwieldy. Yes. And because back when the earth was still cooling and I was writing my dissertation, footnoting software was just not as good as it is now. And I was wasting so much time mm. trying to learn how to use it mm. that I was losing time I could have been spending writing so, or complaining about writing. Yeah. So, so two things on this for me. I have uh, the, the way, by the way, I re I reuse quotes that I've used before yeah. as I go find the paper, the word versus the paper and copy and paste it into the new one. I, right? I do that as well yeah. now again. Yeah. But, but I, And I think which goes to the point that another advice for young academics is is organize your files in a way where you don't waste time finding things. Right. Every every minute that you go, this isn't where I think it should be is a failure of your filing system. Right. This is my great shame. Yes. And so <laughs> mine's not mine's not perfect, but it's pretty good. So there's that. But the other thing I was going to say is I with, you know, again, writing books is different. But when I wrote with, with the books, what I did was create a master bibliography file from all the stuff I cited in those books. And so frequently now when I go to construct the reference list for a paper I'm writing today, I just still have that, those files, right? And I'll just go back and copy paste from those yeah. and move them into, you know, if it's older stuff. The problem is, is that those are, those are, you know, kind of out of date, right? Um, yeah. They get out of date. So, so I tend to, I find myself again, even with references going into an, an old, word version of a paper and copying and pasting if I know I cited it there, right? If I were, you know, if I were really being the best version of myself, at some point in the past, I would have combined all those files and made a giant master bibliography file. But that's, that's a pretty big upfront investment. I'm not sure it's worth it. Yeah. But I think, you know, if I were starting out, you know, as a, as a grad student right now, I would probably find a way to do that, though. You know, I, I also I worry about getting too reliant on a particular piece of software because so, you know, like all that stuff we had on floppy disks right? <laughs> <laughs> it was going to preserve it forever. Yeah. And we were always gonna be able to get to it. Right. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, I'm also getting a little shaky sitting here looking at, at Sarah's uh, Gmail and all the unread messages. They're mostly junk. But, but, but like, like, you know, 2,000 unread messages in one folder. For Wait. Me. Oh, no, yeah. that's just, yeah, I know. that's, I know it's mostly that's junk. a junk mail. Doesn't matter. Still makes me shaky. This is, this is the number that counts. Yeah, I know. I Inbox that. 18. Inbox that's 18 not too fine. bad that's, for that's Thursday. Good. That is good. That's fine. <laughs> um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? I'm, I could go on. I, I, to be honest, the reason why I'm asking, yes, we could do this forever. I know the reason why I'm asking um, is because I'm looking at my battery and it's seven percent, and my recharger is downstairs. <laughs> that makes me nervous too. <laughs> it's red. It started red at something like twelve, and I'm looking at it in the corner of my eye, thinking, "Okay, when it gets to five, it gets a little bit glitchy." Well, yeah, is there, is there was, anything that yeah. you thought we would talk about that we didn't talk about that you'd like to? Yeah, you, you've you've got you've got two percent left. <laughs> I won't put a time on it. Put a percentage on it. Now it says low battery. <laughs> so, all right. Um, all right. No, no, no. I could run down and get it. I'm I'm cool with that. 
it's up to you. We can. We. I yeah. think we we've, we've done about ninety minutes. So we yeah. yeah. certainly done. Yeah. I think the writing chunk. Yeah. Yeah, um, we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because we touched on the Facebook stuff and uh, social media and how that could get you going in terms of. Yeah your your um, content or feedback or discussion yeah. going and yeah. that type of thing i'm not sure if there's anything if we left anything out um yeah because we looked at referees and writing styles and routines and that type of thing and tips yeah um, yep. and and some some you know as ever more digression than actual yeah, projects, but, yeah, but yeah. some digressions into how projects happen yeah. and yeah cool. um, and steve you're all good anyway are you yeah i'm, I'm doing well Good, well. good, good. Yes, he's doing. He's doing really well. Back to back to full power. Yeah, great. Delighted for you. Yeah, it's a. It's a. I, I'm sure it was tough going. You know, in terms of um, getting the diagnosis and then having to uh, deal with that. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad to see you. You know, back to yourself on Facebook and giving out yeah. as, as ever, yeah. <laughs> as much as ever. I got. I got too much to do. I don't have time for cancer. Exactly. Good. 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 <laughs> um. Yeah. Look. Uh, I really appreciate both of you coming on. This is uh, quite experimental for me, uh, hence the oh, green screen so behind me. So I just bought, yeah. picked that up yesterday, and um, I might put an image in the background. You know, who knows? Um, mm. Who knows? Or I might just leave it green because it's Irish, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? It'd be good uh, for St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, but no, it's it's great to yeah, talk to you, and it's you. it's always fun for us when we get a chance to do. To do yeah. stuff together. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I was delighted that the two of you jumped at the chance anyway when I put the offer out there. Yeah. Maybe we'll do it again okay. sometime Anytime. in the future. Please, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Great. And uh, you know, next time we're over on that side of things, we're gonna we're gonna look we'll you up. Find you. Find you. We'll find you. Let me know and I'll uh, fly the other way. <laughs> 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 no, only joking. Only joking. Yeah. We'll get you over here sometime or something. Cool. Nice one. Great. And again, as always, you're both economic rock stars, and I appreciate you taking time out on this and learning. I, I honestly learned a lot from you. Um, for, check out the episode economicrockstar.com forward slash Sarah and Steve, because after all, it is the Sarah and Steve show. Maybe this will become a weekly thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All the best then. Hey, thank you, all right, Sarah. Thanks you so much. All the best. Bye. Yeah, thanks very much. Bye. Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar 
or visit the supporters page on the Economic Rockstar website. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.